This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to Connected to Chicago. We start this week with the Reporter Roundtable. And welcome in Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune, Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times, and Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business. Uh, folks, a lot happening this week, uh, a lot of different uh, maps, and then they redo the maps and redo the maps again. We're talking about the congressional map that uh, is actually going to see a Republican kind of bow out and not go for re-election, and it'll pit a couple of uh, Democrats against each other. Lynn, uh, let's hear from you. What's the latest uh, version of the map that's come out? Well, it pits uh, the biggest news for the moment is that uh, Adam Kinzinger is not going to run again. Uh, he was put in the district by Democrats against Darren LaHood, and he's just going to move on uh, and out. He doesn't, in my senses, he's just going to seek a larger national stage. He said in a statement that there's a new chapter to be written. Uh, the reality was he would have had a tough primary running against any Democrat because he, he is one of the major anti-Trump Republicans in the United States. Uh, the other big news is that in creating a second Hispanic district, uh, the Democratic mapmakers, uh, as a byproduct, created a primary, of all things, between two Democrats, and it will be something between Rep. Marie Newman and uh, Sean Kasten. So that's those are the two big highlights uh, that, that are the newest developments on Friday morning. Greg, I guess... Uh, I... So it's they did what they had to do, but it looks like at least one Democrat's going to have to go away, right? Is that uh, unusual that they would? I mean, why, why wouldn't the party kind of back their own and, and carve this out so that uh, both of them could stay? Well, that is the uh, you are correct. Uh, that is the normal thing that you would that most would occur in most years, but in this case, the the Democrats were really concerned about uh, taking care of uh, a second creating a second uh, Latino plurality district up on the north side, uh, both for legal reasons. Uh, uh, they ran into, into problems with their state legislative map uh, because they didn't have enough Latino districts, uh, and for political reasons. Frankly, uh, this is this group has uh, is really starting to flex its muscle now. Uh, Hispanics nationally have started to move in the Republican direction a little bit, and Democrats don't want that to happen here. So they decided to make this group happy, and when they did, by creating a new district, somebody else had to go because it's just only so many people to go around, uh, which is why uh, uh, Newman, although her house is in uh, Chuy Garcia's district, uh, the bulk of her old district uh, it, is, in, is in the new district she shares with Sean, with, uh, Sean Kasten, and that's where she's going to run. And Lynn's right, this is going to be a doozy for primary between a moderate and a uh, and a progressive. Um, but, uh, you know, you can't – in politics, is, even in Illinois, you can only go so far. And uh, the, the Democrats decided that they had to take care of the Latinos first. Ray, uh, let me – Yeah. go ahead. Well, it seems to me that one uh, undercurrent here that's interesting is that Marie Newman knocked off long-timer Dan Lipinski, who is the son of Bill Lipinski, the previous uh, – Longtime uh, congressman from the Southwest Side in the sphere of uh, former party chairman and former House Speaker Mike Madigan. And so um, when she did that, she uh, created some ill will among some of 
the longtime uh, backers of the Lipinski-Madigan crowd. So there were undercurrents of uh, efforts to, uh, if you're going to knock somebody out, uh, Marie Newman may be one uh, to do it. Now, she's also a freshman, so she's the lowest-ranking member of the party. But uh, this is another kind of uh, piece of political intrigue. Lynn, is this a chance for Republicans then to put up maybe a Hispanic candidate uh, to try and, 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 and take the seat? No, because the uh, district, uh, both Hispanic districts are heavily Democratic, and I think the new, uh, the third Democratic, the new third Democratic district, which is a Hispanic influence district, it only has about 43% voting age population Hispanic, and when you discount that, or people who are not eligible to vote, uh, and, and youth voters who don't vote, it might even get to be 38, 39, 37. Uh, so, but the point is, it's heavily Democratic. Whoever wins the primary is going to be the new member of Congress. And uh, you all saw the uh, the video, I assume, of uh, um, of Kinzinger announcing that he's not going to run again. It kind of sounded to me like. A, a stump speech. I, I don't know. W- what do we think is in in his future? Lynn, you want to take a guess? Well, he had said he would look at running for governor or senator of Illinois if the map doesn't go to his favor. I think based on what he said and just my longtime coverage of him, I think he's just going to continue on a national platform to reclaim the party from uh, Trumpism. He is on the January yeah. 6th committee. Uh, I just don't think the things that an Illinois governor is interested in interest him very much. And as a political reality, if he ran for senator, he would be pitted. It would be hard in any case for him to win a primary anywhere in Illinois. But even if he were to become a Republican nominee for the Senate or governor, uh, as I said, I, I just don't think he's interested in being governor. And there's a line of people, including a very Trumpian uh, member of the Illinois legislature already in, so that's a crowded field. So kind of rule that out. If he were yeah, to survive, I think, I think Lynn, you're, you're absolutely he'd be, uh, he'd be running against uh, Tammy Duckworth. Yeah, I, I think Lynn is absolutely right on that. My gut kind of tells me that Adam has, has Lynn put it uh, gone national. I put it gone Hollywood. He likes the national stage, um, and I, I don't see him vacating it. Um, we might also talk briefly about uh, somebody else affected by this map. There was another Republican congressman from Illinois who talked about running against Mr. Pritzker for re-election. That's Rodney Davis from downstate Taylorville, and, and it's no coincidence that the new map that the Democrats rolled out and passed creates a brand new district for for Mr. for uh, Mr. Davis that no other uh, Republican incumbent is in. Um, uh, Davis hasn't said anything yet, but his people have been signaling for a while that he really wants wanted to stay in the House and he'd only run for governor if he had to. Well, now he has an easy uh, easy way out to stay in the House, and I don't I think that's one less opponent who's pretty well known that Mr. Pritchard won't have to worry about at re-election time. Hmm. Well, I think another thing uh, with regard to Kissinger is that he's already out there pretty far as uh, an anti-Trumpian. But he also now is free to free to say anything and do anything. Not that he hasn't already, but when you're not running for re-election, it sometimes even frees your vocal cords even more. 
Well, we'll uh, see what happens, I guess. Uh, and, and again, this is not uh, a done deal yet, right? This, uh, Lynn, does this need the signature of the governor, or what? What's the next step? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it needs the signature of the governor, but he's going to sign this. Uh, this is just gets a headache off of his desk. There's no reason that he wouldn't do it. Uh, so it's off, and the uh, the big Illinois primary with Kasten and Newman has already started as of Friday morning. So another big political year is already shaping up in Illinois, even though the primary was pushed back because of the census numbers coming in late. The primary was pushed from March to June. Uh, we're still going to see people now starting to run for Congress, and they'll do this in legislative districts once their map is finalized. One thing to think, I also think that this uh, congressional map will be challenged in court no matter what uh, Republicans have already vowed to do so. And where do you think it'll go there in the courts? Well, the creation of a second Hispanic influence district, you know, as we discussed, uh, might insulate them from uh, criticism, and there will be charges that the uh, Democrats uh, gerrymandered, which they did. The Republicans, right. I guess, should only be grateful that they didn't follow the desire of uh, Nancy Pelosi and Washington Democrats to make it a 15-2 advantage, and instead they only made the map 14-3. Mm. With that, we're going to shift uh, subjects. And, Lynn, I know we've got another commitment, so we're going to let you go. Thanks for sh- hopping on here today. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Uh, gentlemen, um, can we talk about the mayor's budget for a minute? Uh, there's something kind of unique here, this pilot program uh, to give $5,000 or, or to give 5,000 families, low-income families or households, $500 a month. Is that a done deal? Is that uh, it's in the budget? It's in the budget. It's 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 approved, and uh, the mayor's the mayor's going to sign it. Um, I think kind of the broader context here is uh, is uh, Lori Lightfoot has the advantage this this uh, budget cycle of having lots of federal money she can spend more than a billion dollars in federal COVID relief funds. And there was a big fight shaping up over how she should spend it. Should she put it in the city reserve? Should she should she use it to pay off old debts? Uh, will she decide to roll the dice at least a little bit? Most of it went to, to pay off bank loans that the city no longer needs. But there's some hundreds of millions of dollars in big social spending. Um, uh, not only this, but uh, but uh, housing programs, any poverty programs, training programs, any violence programs. Those are the kinds of things that the city council progressive block had been really pushing for really hard. And if you note, most of them voted for the budget. Uh, you know, even with the property taxes, this thing rather handily got through. Uh, that's good short-term politics, probably, for a mayor who's uh, uh, presumably getting ready to run for re-election herself in a year and a half. Uh, but the fiscal question it poses is, okay, after the federal money dries up in a couple of years, what are we going to do with these programs? Are we going to, are we going to end them and make a lot of people unhappy? Or are we going to raise taxes more? But that's tomorrow's problem, not today's. I think Greg's absolutely right. There are big questions that are down the line here, but there are short-term rewards here because she comes out of the progressive community and she wants to to do something that shows that she's progressive. And this is certainly a, a progressive idea. You know, this is the kind of idea that Andrew Yang, uh, the Democratic presidential candidate uh, in 2020, 
uh, also was a big backer of. And the idea here is that um, there can be thousands of, of uh, homes that could could get a piece of this. The, the program basically will dole, dole out to $500 in payments each month to a group of low-income families. And this is uh, progressive in every phase of the way. And she uh, is is going to be able to get a lot of political juice out of this one move. What do you think, Ray? Maybe she has a little, uh, adds a little note to the first check. Here's your money, Lori. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've seen that on the federal level, haven't we? Um, well, well I, and I guess the, the vote on this, uh, there was a, a vote on the tax levy, right, was 32 to 18, the budget 35-15. I, I guess it wasn't um, – I, I, I thought that uh, it would be a little closer than that, Greg. Um. You know, I did too, but uh, but as Ray correctly suggested, there's a lot of goodies here. There's a there's a lot of gravy. Um, but here's what I'd watch uh, going down the road here a little bit. Um, uh, the the folks I cover, the business community, uh, particularly the downtown office building folks, who are really they have empty buildings right now to a large degree. People are because of COVID are very slow to come back. They're worried to death that the city now has 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 institutionalized big property tax increases every cycle, another $76 million this year. And Fritz Kage, the county assessor, is busy, is busy issuing reassessments that will ensure that business pays more of those costs than they have traditionally. And then there's an argument to be made, there's been some good research that the, that the assessments weren't, weren't terribly fair, that the that, uh, homeowners are paying too too too, uh, too much, uh, and that uh, some of the big business guys were, were paying too little. They add all that together and put it on top of a pandemic, and it's going to cost some some heartburn and maybe more. I will see how that affects the city's economy. I mean, ultimately, if if it's if this is no longer a good place to operate because the costs are too expensive, uh, that's not going to work to anybody's advantage either. But that hasn't happened yet. And that'll be part of the assessor's race too. That'll be a, an issue that's raised in the assessor's race. Uh, anybody who wants to get in against uh, Fritz Kagan, there are already people raising their hand. Yeah, yeah, it makes me wonder though if uh, Greg has a point here. If if the assessments suddenly uh, are kind of jarring, I, I, I could see uh, businesses moving out. I mean, and and Ray, we could kind of look at the Chicago Bears maybe as maybe not so much taxes, but uh, kind of maybe seeing uh, greener pastures uh, yonder there in Arlington Heights. Yeah, all you have to do is go uh, west of Chicago and down some of the major highways and see how the property tax uh, uh, situation in Chicago has sent big businesses out into the suburbs. And so that has been a decades, decades long uh, issue. So, uh, you know, if there's more pressure on property taxes in Chicago, then others may be looking to follow uh, out, out the Ike and on beyond. Hey Greg, I wonder what does this do for um, for pensions? Uh, the city's still behind on fully funding uh, public pensions, right? 
Well, we've made some progress, uh, thanks to uh, largely thanks to former Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Uh, I don't know he's a controversial guy, but he but he did move the needle on that. We're now at a point where where we, we're on this long term plan uh, to get to, to get to, to get the full funding and ninety percent funding by uh, I think twenty thirty five. But uh, for the first time in this new budget, we're putting in the amount the actuaries say we're supposed to put out to, to follow the terms of, of the long term plan or the ramp as it's known in the business. Um, that's significant because prior to that we've been getting further behind every year because we, we weren't putting in the amount we, we were needed just to stay even. So we're getting a little bit further behind every year. Well now we're putting in more. Um, so that that's and then most a good chunk of the uh, property tax increase is, is going to pay for that. Um, but it's still a huge load. Uh, uh, tech, property taxes are much higher than they, than they used to be. We'll have a little news on that uh, later today. After we tape this, the city is supposed to uh, disclose how many people have bid for uh, its, uh, the proposed casino downtown. That's where it's going to go. It's going to go central to central area. And all indications are there's going to be some pretty healthy competition, which is good. Well, the profits from that, uh, maybe $150, $200 million a year, are supposed to go into uh, the, the, the police pension fund, which means that we won't have to put in more property taxes. We'll have another source for it. And we'll have to pause here to take a quick break, but we'll be back to finish up the roundtable here on Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. And we're back with the roundtable. Let's ask a question about the uh, vaccine mandate. How is it uh, going? Uh, I guess a judge on Monday is going to tell us uh, whether or not the Chicago Police Union, the FOP, gets their way. Greg, what do you know the latest uh, is here as we're recording on a Friday afternoon? Well, as we're recording, there's a special city council meeting called by some alderman who want to take away the mayor's unilateral authority to issue max mandates and and and, and the like. Um, there's some federal court, there's some court cases, both in federal and state court, that have, that have been pending. Um, uh, uh, I can't predict what the judge is going to do, but other judges who have had similar cases have ruled in favor of the government and said the government does have such a power. Um, you know, my kind of take on this is, I'll, I'll, I'll put it bluntly, I, I sympathize with police, um, but, you know, hundreds of millions of people all over the globe have been vaccinated now. Uh, they haven't been falling over like flies from, uh, there's no secret microchips in them and whatever. Uh, the time for reasonable skepticism is over here. Um, it's, a, it's just as a matter of, of ordinary fact. Police interact with the public. It's almost inevitable. And if somebody's going to be in your face, you want them to be safe. You don't want them to be, be a threat to you. And that's particularly the case for, 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 for men and women who are, uh, who are sworn to uphold the law. Well, the law in this city is you either have to be vaccinated uh, or you have, first you have to tell us what your status is, whether you've been vaccinated or not. And if you're not, you have to get regularly tested to make sure you're safe. That strikes me as eminently reasonable, and this taxpayer is really sick to death of these guys acting mm-hmm. as if they can do whatever they want. Well, I think Greg has hit it on the head as far as uh, a lot of the feeling in the public uh, goes right there. And the other thing that strikes me about this, which is a kind of question down the line, what happens if a couple of cops who are uh, who do have coronavirus uh, give it to a, a 
couple of families, and those families end up, you know, with a couple of cases or, God forbid, a couple of people die, and the lawsuits could be a cottage industry in this town. So there are repercussions beyond just the idea of I won't get a a shot or a vaccine, even though I have to get 15 of them to, for my kid to get into school. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of different factors that go into this. And um, it, just in New York, as Greg alluded to other court cases, just in New York this week, a judge ruled that it's okay to have a mandate for police there to to uh, get vaccinated. So it's going to be it's going to be happening uh, here in Illinois. It looks like. Uh, it's a tough case for the police union to win. Yeah, Nick, I'll, I'll give you a line I use in my new column, which is why I'm kind of uh, ready for this one. Um, you know, if, if, if you get pulled over by a cop for speeding, why don't you try t- using the line, well, gee, officer, I can't accept the ticket because philosophically uh, you're infringing on my right to uh, freedom of travel. I have the right to travel at whatever rate I want. Try try that line and see if it works. Yeah. <laughs> you may transmit the coronavirus to me if you haven't been vaccinated by handing me the ticket. I mean, it's, the possibilities <laughs> on the other end of the equation are just uh, enormous. Yeah. Um, I want to finish with this. Um, because I know both of you have covered Blagojevich uh, back in the day, and even maybe today. Uh, ABC is coming out with a uh, docu-series, they call it. It's four or five parts, I forget. But it's going to feature Rob Blagojevich. Uh, they're calling this Being Blago, and they're billing this as um, some archival footage and four months of exclusive raw access to Blagojevich's life post-prison as he searches for redemption and determines uh, a return to politics. Uh, Ray, (laughs) what do you think? I cover the guy. Um, He was uh, ill-prepared as governor. He was lazy as governor. He caused all kinds of of, uh, financial problems as governor. He broke laws as governor. He tried to sell the U.S. Senate seat. Uh, He tried to squeeze a children's hospital administrator for campaign contributions in exchange Mm -hmm. for uh, getting uh, medical assistance, uh, money for medical assistance that the state owed the the, uh, hospital. He uh, tried to shake down a horse track owner. The list is almost endless. He was impeached. He's the first governor in Illinois <laughs> to be impeached. He was thrown out of, uh, of the office by the Illinois Senate. They even voted in Springfield to not fund having a painting of his picture put on the wall. The <laughs> governor. He, he's a many first governor, but um, what he's doing now uh, has got to be puzzling that people actually care. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a phrase that uh, P.T. Barham used once upon a time, and it applies to anybody who thinks that this, that, that what this quote-unquote docu, whatever it is, is anything other than pure sh- show business. Uh, it applies to them. That's a sucker born every minute. Um, uh, <laughs> Ray's absolutely right. I mean, this is – look at it as pure – Entertainment. I mean, if that's your cup of tea, go for it. You know, and uh, Ron has a right to make money. Now he's out of prison like anybody else, but he ain't going to get any of mine. Well, that'll do it for the Reporter Roundtable. My thanks to Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. 
and Greg Hines there of Crane's Chicago Business, as well as Lynn Sweet of the Chicago Sun-Times. Up next, our special guest, University of Illinois law professor Matthew Finken on Connected to Chicago on 890 WLS. The fight between Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the Fraternal Order of Police over the COVID-19 vaccine mandate continues in and out of court. The next court date scheduled for Monday. Our guest this week, Professor Matthew Finken, Director of the Program in Comparative Labor and Employment Law and Policy at the University of Illinois College of Law. And my thanks for joining us this week, Professor. Happy to be here. So I guess I want to start by asking, is this a case of the mayor essentially ignoring or dismissing the union's collective bargaining agreement with the city? Well, if the collective bargaining agreement deals explicitly with the issue in a manner that's favorable to the union's position, if there was a clause that says they won't be subjected to a vaccine mandate, then she would be violating, city would be violating the collective bargaining agreement. But I'm not aware that that provision, such a provision exists. So it really depends on what is in the CBA. And of course, you don't have a copy and I don't have a copy of it. Um, is this... This is obviously kind of new territory, I would think, because we are talking about a, a vaccine. It's not, uh, you know, a, a usual dispute o- over working conditions or something like that. Well, I don't think I don't think that's right. I mean, employees have been required to be vaccinated. Uh, there, uh, particularly, for example, in healthcare, there are uh, some cases, maybe a dozen or more, uh, reported cases of employees of healthcare institutions who've objected to vaccination. And the law is pretty clear on uh, what how that plays out. Could you tell us how, how that does play out? Yeah, management has a right to require employees to be vaccinated, particularly not only for their own safety, but for the safety of their coworkers and clients, general public, the people uh, they, they uh, engage with. Now, there are uh, some uh, pockets... Uh, of exception, in particular, too, if you have a religious objection, a well-grounded religious objection, or if you you yourself, if the employee suffers from a disability or a medical condition uh, for which the vaccination would would exacerbate or pose a threat of injury, in both of those cases, employers are required to engage in what's called a, a process of accommodation, see if they can work out something else other than the vaccination that would satisfy the employer's concern. Just two points on that. The standard is quite low. It's, it's, if the employer is required to do anything other than the minimum, then the accommodation process is concluded. And the second point is if you can't achieve an accommodation, if there's none that would satisfy the employer's needs, then, uh, then the employee has to either um, comply or, or, or be terminated. And when talking to you earlier in setting up for the interview, um, you had talked about like a management rights clause. Uh, is that essentially where the, the management has a right to say, hey, we got to keep everybody safe here and we got to do what we have to do to maintain safety in the workplace? Kind of along those lines. Could you explain that? Well, you're putting it back into the context of collective bargaining. And most collective agreements do have management rights clauses. And uh, the, que- the question of whether an employee employees must be uh, accept to be man, uh, ma- vaccinated is a working condition, and ordinarily that would be subject to bargaining uh, with a union if there is one. Uh, management would uh, no doubt point to its management's rights clause, saying no, we don't have to bargain about that. 
because you've agreed in the contract that we retain certain rights, and this is this is one of them. So there might be a dispute arising over that question. Secondly, if if it's not encompassed by the management's rights clause, well, then they have to bargain about it. But bargaining is simply a process, again, of accommodation with the uh, union's objections. And once uh, the, the bargaining process is ended, if they haven't reached an agreement, then management would be privileged to take the action that it thought necessary. And your understanding as it applies with HIPAA, HIPAA really doesn't apply here, right? Because it's it's a vaccination status. As you said to me yesterday, it's um, it's not like this is a health care company releasing information, right? Well, there's been some uh, report in the press that I've seen, certainly on uh, interviews with the uh, with the union, that they, they think there's an issue of privacy involved, that the disclosure to the employer of the vaccination status of the officers is an invasion of privacy. Uh, and the answer to that is uh, that it isn't. Uh, they try that there there are medical confidentiality laws. You mentioned the federal ones, quite complicated. This uh, HIPAA law, but that that deals with the disclosure of the medical records contained in the files of sort of what they call covered entities. That's the the police department doesn't fit into that. Secondly, uh, the, if an employer has the right to demand vaccination, which I think it does, it certainly has the right to demand um, that the uh, employee disclose. Uh, uh, or document uh, the employee's status. That's not that's not a private right, privacy right anymore. And moreover, it's only the the nature of the of the vaccination status is disclosed to the employee. It's not published to the general you know world. It's so it's it's not an invasion of privacy either. I think any statutory sense, nor in our common law conception of privacy. You had an article that you had uh, written in uh, Bloomberg. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting. Tell us a little bit about, I guess, what are you hearing uh, when it comes to, you know, vaccines, the mandate in the workplace? I, I guess kind of what we've been talking about. Well, the, the statistics speak for themselves. I mean, United Airlines has demanded that everybody, all of its employees uh, are vaccinated. They've already are over a 90 percent level. Uh, many, many increasingly uh, employees, certainly in the private sector, and now the federal government has its own mandates. I mean, the, we, you know, this is a matter of not only for the safety of the employee, of the particular employee, and protect, protecting against the infection, uh, the hospitalization, potentially death, but we're talking about the protection of the community as a whole. This goes back, you know, uh, to George Washington, who inoculated his troops, uh, and I believe he even inoculated his wife, which is quite dangerous at that time. We're talking 200 years ago. In front of his troops to show that it was uh, that it was safe. I mean, we've had mandatory requirements. Children have to be vaccinated to get into schools. We've even had quarantines of people. Uh, yellow fever, for example. I mean, this is simply. I'm just appalled at the um, pushback by people who say this is a matter of individual liberty. And when when we live in a country that values individual liberty, but is also committed to certain communal values. I mean. I, I'm I'm struck by that. I, I, don't, I wonder whether we we you know when I was a kid we we had a course in middle school called uh, civics. Uh, yeah. That's what we was drilled into us. This was we certain civic responsibilities of being a citizen. It's it's odd to me that a police department, which is vested in the you know with the with the protective role that it has, 
um, in execution of the law would defy the law in the way it has. And I guess when we come back to the issue here in Chicago, safe to say it really does all come down to politics, I think, right? It's not about well, getting the vaccine. It's more of this political fight that we see. Well, uh, I'm, I, I'm not a resident of Chicago. It's a city I love uh, very much. Uh, but uh, sitting from outside the city as I w- listen to the rhetoric, uh, yes, it's couched in notions of individual uh, privilege and liberty. And, but it certainly does seem to be that this vaccination issue has become a flashpoint of a much larger dynamic between the police union and the mayor. It just happens to be this issue. I think it could be almost any other that they would seize on. Sure. Um, So yesterday, I'll explain to you, and maybe you've seen it in the news, maybe not, because you are down there. Um, A judge uh, basically said that when it comes to this restraining order that the union is seeking, um, a a temporary restraining order, that it should maybe go before the labor board, Uh, Because the judge said that the city's argument that the president's words are essentially like a strike or could provoke a strike, really, even though there's a no-strike clause within the collective bargaining agreement, so he says maybe this should just go before a labor board. Is that maybe an appropriate place for this to move forward? Well, if the union's claim is that this is a bargainable matter and the city has... uh avoided or uh, its obligation to bargain, that would be an unfair labor practice, a duty, a failure to bargain in good faith. And that would go to the labor board. It would not go to a court. And the judge is also combining a, a couple of different, I guess, lawsuits into one to conserve resources, he says. That's not uncommon, is it? No, no, by no means. We, in fact, we, we, we would want, I mean, this this. There is an element of public emergency about this, and you don't want different pieces of litigation floating around in different courts. Is there anything else that you think that uh, we missed when talking about this topic, uh, you know, um, overall? I I, I guess I'm amused is probably not the right word because the law is so very clear. And the obligations of the uh, employees of the city are so very clear, just as they are for here at the University of Illinois, for other state employees, for private sector employees. Uh, the mandate's a simple one, get, get vaccinated or have good reason why you should not be. I simply am uh, befuddled as to uh, the depth of sentiment this has triggered. Let me just ask you, when it comes to these exemptions, uh, for you know a religious exemption or maybe you have a medical exemption do, do companies do they play by the rules would you know well yes i mean at least by the in the reported case they were advised by counsel most lawyers try to get their their major clients you know the major employers uh, to comply with the law that's their job they avoid litigation you avoid the costs and the bad publicity and all of that by having the employer do the right thing so this these actions that are being rolled out uh, by these major, these large companies are are invariably taken under the advice of counsel that they're doing, they're complying with the law and they're doing the right thing. Uh, you know, uh, let me take a an easy example. If you are a construction worker, uh, you have to wear, and you're on the job site, you have to wear a hard hat. Now that's for your own protection more than, you know, that's not not just for the, it's not for the protection of everyone around you. 
But if you don't wear the hard hat, you you lose your job. There's a federal rule, and it's as simple as that. If you you feel that it's it's your liberty not to wear that headgear uh, that interferes with the, your presentation of yourself to the world or something, and that's that's not I'm not scoffing at that argument. I, mm-hmm. We do recognize that you have a certain liberty interest, but. Uh, those are surrendered uh, reasonably when you enter the workplace. There are health and safety rules that employees simply have to observe and that employers might be liable if they fail to enforce. So if you don't have the safety, you don't want to wear the safety gear, adios. Yeah, okay. Uh, My guest this week, Matthew Finken, Director of the uh, Program in Comparative Law and Employment Law and Policy at the University of Illinois College of Law, and my uh, thanks to you for joining us again. Thanks so much, Professor. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. The Lions are returning to the Lincoln Park Zoo this month. Joining me today to tell us about the new state-of-the-art Pepper Family Wildlife Center is Maureen Leahy, Vice President of Animal Care and Horticulture. Maureen, welcome to Connected to Chicago. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So this new wildlife center has been a long time in the making. You broke ground on it in 2019, so it must be something really, really special. You know, it really is. Um, A pandemic certainly did not slow construction on our end. We followed all safety protocols, and uh, we have created an amazing place at the Pepper Family Wildlife Center with a state-of-the-art lion habitat and restoring the beautiful, historic, uh, iconic lion house that was built originally in 1912. And so this is a historic house, and you had to kind of keep that into consideration when you were, um, you know, making it state-of-the-art. So what are some of the things you had to do in order to keep the history intact but also, you know, move it to the 21st century? No, that's a great question, and certainly by far this was the largest and most challenging project we've had in a while at Lincoln Park Zoo. But we worked alongside with the um, Commission of Landmarks with the city to ensure that we uh, maintained landmark status for this historic building because it's such an iconic part of Chicago's history and the zoo's history as well. And so we had certain zones of design flexibility that we could work with, and we were able to marry the historic building with a state-of-the-art habitat that really used data and science and our understanding of lion preferences to create a habitat that's not just expansive but very dynamic with a lot of vertical complexity, dynamic enrichment features, thermal comfort zones for the lions depending on Chicago seasons, and also a lot of uh, shade and shelter that we um, knew from the data we collected on our previous Pride of Lions and understanding what their preferences were. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that'll do it for this week's Connected to Chicago. My thanks again to our reporters, Ray Long of the Tribune, Greg Hines of Cranes,